Amen. Well, church, as you're having a seat, uh, if you would, grab your Bibles. You can open up to Matthew's gospel. We're going to spend a little bit of time in there. Um, so glad that you're here. Welcome. Uh, it is my birthday, 38 today, which feels good. I'm tipping over. I'm real close to over the hill. So everyone told me it's, it's yeah, so black balloons will come out in a couple years, but we're not quite there yet. So almost there, almost over the hill. But we're so glad that you're here with us on this summer morning. Like Zach said, we just finished our study in the book of Ruth. Our normative way of teaching through the Bible is verse by verse, and so we've been doing that this summer uh, through this, that wonderful story in Ruth, the story of redemption. So we've got a couple of weeks in between before we start looking at some character studies and what we're calling a life surrendered. We're going to look at some different characters in the Old Testament and the New Testament of how their lives were surrendered to God, what that meant and what that looked like and how they lived and operated in the world around them with lives that said, God, would you, uh, would you lead and guide me? I want to surrender uh, my own preferences, my own comforts, my own power for your to follow yours in your way. And so we're going to look at some different characters in the Bible. And then leading into the fall, uh, just sneak peek, we are going to spend um, all the way up until around Christmas time studying the Sermon on the Mount. So Matthew 5, 6, and 7. We're going to be going verse by verse through Jesus' most famous sermon where he's teaching his disciples, he's teaching the multitudes, he's teaching the crowds. And it's this incredible summary of the life and ministry of Jesus kind of baked into these three chapters that he says a lot of really incredible things. So we're going to be leaning into there. But in the meantime, uh, this morning, as we kind of had a one-off, which we rarely do, something that has been on my heart, something that I've noticed over the last well, really, about four and a half years since we planted this church. It's been happening long before that, and it will happen probably long after our church is not even in existence anymore. But it's this thing that I think in this day and age, in this crossroads of time that we find ourselves in today, something that I struggle with, something that I've heard many of us struggle with, that keeps bubbling up, keeps popping up, is this idea, this feeling, this um, pervasive thought of just loneliness. I hear it come up all the time with those of us in this church, with myself, as my wife and I talk about our culture and talk about our church. It's this, it's this idea of, I just, I don't feel like I've got a place. I don't feel like I feel connected. It's said many different ways. So this is sort of a negative way of approaching something that normally churches talk about positively, okay? So there's, there's two ways, like if I were going to talk about humility, I could call a series, we're going to do a series on humility, or I could say we're going to be talking about the negative impacts of pride. So that's, that's one way of talking about sort of two different sides of the same coin. So this sermon, I'm approaching it from sort of the negative standpoint and saying, how do we address this pervasive problem in our culture that we call loneliness? Another way of saying it, which we talk about a lot, it's on our banners, we don't put the negative inverse, but we talk about the positive, is that Jesus longs for us to live in community. So that would be the, the other way of talking about loneliness. So two sides of that coin is loneliness and community. And so we're going to be addressing these things today. Um, and we're going to be, uh, uh, and I don't normally uh, preach sermons like this. And so the front end, I'm going to be kind of making an argument. 
So you're going to hear some statistics, you're going to hear some percentages, you're going to hear some uh, generalizations, so to speak, to sort of what I want to do is, is paint a broad stroke of maybe statistics, they're, they're not gospel, right, but they help us understand um, broad strokes of things that are happening in our culture. And so hopefully these will maybe resonate, hopefully they'll help us understand the current state we find ourselves in, in this crossroads of life that we find ourselves in today as a church and as men and women of faith, longing to have Jesus be our guide. So to start off, we live today, we find ourselves today in this highly individualistic world, right? It's every, it's individualism is, is paramount to most of us in our everyday occurrences. Social media algorithms are built on this. Uh, we have news channels dedicated to whatever individualistic point of view is out there. We have social media accounts that just, if, if you're like I talk, talked about years ago, I'm into old automatic watches. You can, there's a whole community, dedi- like you can find whatever little thing you like and just delve into whatever that is. There's little niches, there's nuanced things, there's communities built on highly individualistic things. And those are not bad, evil, or wrong, but we, that's just how our world now uh, in this day and age that we find ourselves is crafted. So we can just dive right into all these things. So we live in this highly individualistic world where you can have all the things at your fingertips that you're into, that you want to know, that you want to study about, and yet at the same time, this idea of loneliness, of feeling alone in all of these things, or in our hearts, or in our souls, is, is pervasive. And this is not only true outside the church, this is true inside the church. Loneliness is something that we all struggle with, both in and outside the church. Communities, and even big cities, are plagued with people who experience and say they deal with chronic loneliness. It's an issue. You can even come into a church, even to a small church like this, and you can look around and you can sit down and you just feel like everyone else is connected except me, and you can start to have this ache or this gnawing at you. And you're, and you're like, what, what is it about me? You can be walking around in your community and you're thinking, I don't feel connected. I don't feel like I've got a place. So even in cities, even in places where we're surrounded by people, you can have this gnawing sense of loneliness that begins to eat away at you, right? And one of the reasons is uh, we're a lot more transient, just like socially speaking. People come and go, people leave, people no longer, families don't stay in the same town, in the same place for generation after generation after generation. Even we don't have uh, like... It, it, right, so that you don't set up even these these family generations. So you've you've lost a sense of identity with regard to family and place. That's not really that doesn't really happen in America. Doesn't happen all across the world now, quite frankly. And so you lose a sense of identity. So our identity is no longer wrapped up in family. It's no longer even wrapped up in faith, so to speak, because wherever you ping back and forth, you can go to a different church or a different place. Even within our community, you can just ping back and forth and find to get your individualistic needs met with, with whatever you like or whatever you're feeling that week or that month or that year. And so there's just, it's set up in such a way where it's our, our individualism, our needs that need to be met, ends up dictating a lot of how we operate in life. But yet we look up in our modern society, in our modern culture, and people are plagued with this feeling of loneliness. 
this feeling of emptiness, this feeling of where do I fit in in this world? It's interesting, even in studies, when you look at uh, during wartime, especially even in World War II, you would think that depression rates um, would have skyrocketed, but actually those that were stateside, that didn't go off to war, that weren't fighting in the battles, those that were here, that were helping the wartime efforts and rallying, there was actually a decreased sense of depression and loneliness in our culture because of this common bond that united the country together to fight a common enemy. We were in it together. They rallied around. People were praying. People were standing up for something. So there was this rallying point, even during what you would think would be a dark time in our country, that actually depression rates uh, were in rapid decline during that time. Now, we see this individualism has crept into all facets of society, right? This could be seen also in church attendance, so church attendance, pastors love to talk about this. If you're ever uh, interested, like church st- statisticians track this all the time. We love thinking about this. It's terrifying to think about. But church attendance across the board in the United States has been cut in half since 1950. A 50% exodus in church attendance since 1950 to, d- to today. Right? That's alarming. And it's easy to read that statement, and this is what most pastors do, and we're like, oh, geez, that's... What's going on with the church? The church isn't cool enough. It's not hip enough. It's not relevant enough. So we need to change this. We need to do this. But that doesn't answer the full question when you look at it. This, this exodus of um, connectivity, this exodus of community in churches isn't just happening in churches. There's so many studies that say that this is happening both in and outside the church. In and outside the church. So the exodus, the, the going away from community is happening in almost every social fabric in our society. Um, John Mark Comer, a guy that I've been listening to a podcast, he referenced uh, a, a book that a guy named Robert Putman wrote a few years ago. And his book makes these, starts, use, studies this whole idea. In his book, he's not a Christian, but he's observing the modern culture and the uh, lack and exodus of community in the modern culture that we live in, both not just in the church, but even outside the church. And his book is entitled this, Bowling Alone. So the title kind of makes its, its own case, which is really funny because all the guys just went bowling. Is anyone in here actively on a bowling team or in a league? Show of hands. No one, right? In fact, all the guys that we went bowling, we had a great time. We had like 30 guys just throwing bowling balls down, and we, had, we were all laughing. and having, We were like, we, a lot of us, we find ourselves looking at each other like, why don't we do this more often? I don't know. This is so fun. It's like... But no one, it's, it was almost nostalgic. It was like, oh, remember when people used to go bowling? This is so hilarious that we're doing this again. It was like a, an, an activity in like, oh, I feel like I'm a 1950s dad now. We're going bowling. Remember they used to do? But that used to be a thing. Like just a few years ago, they would all be on bowling teams. And it was where they found connectedness, where they found community, where they would invest in lives, where you were laughing and sharing about your job change, or having little side conversations around some buffalo wings, right? This has eroded in modern society. Think about it across the, bo- across the board, not just in churches. The bowling leagues, there's no such thing anymore. They're gone. It's a nostalgic event that we take, take, take to because our dads used to take it, and we're like, I'm going to have my kids do it too, right? But I'm not going to sign up for a league. That requires commitment. I have to talk to someone. Freaks me out, right? 
I don't want to do that. Across the board, it's, this is happening. It's like on, on every level. And, and no one here feels this high level of commitment to a bowling league. We're like, I'm just, I don't have time for that. So what used to be a very normal thing in everyday modern life is not such the case anymore. So not just church community is on the decline, like most pastors like to talk about, but the bowling team is on de- in decline. The Elks Lodge. No, one's, no one goes to the Elks Lodge. What, is, what even is that? I don't know, but I know that used to be a thing that people would go to and talk about elk and lodges, <laughs> right? We don't do that. The Duck Club. No one's a part of the hunting club. We don't go take your buddies and go duck. It's just, that's gone. We don't sign up for those things, or at least very few of us do that, Right? PTA, is that still, I'm sure that's still a thing. Maybe that's a bad example around the suburbs. We're like, oh, yeah, very involved in PTA. <laughs> Booster club, yep, check. But the point is, is like all these things that used to be very normative um, are just sort of, they're not there anymore. And they're crumbling. Church community is the same way. Church attendance is the same way. The bowling club is the same way. The Elks Lodge is the same way. The Duck Club is the same way. Any one of these things that require a high level of commitment, most of the time in the studies that are looking at this in, the, in Putman's book, he says anything that requires a high level of commitment, the attendance has dramatically just plummeted. The involvement has plummeted. And so a lot of, like, uh, they, they believe the 1960s, the seeds of the Enlightenment, if you want to get real philosophical, we can go down that path. We're not going to go all the way down there, but have, have come to full bear in our society today. And what used to be kind of at the margins is now right in the center of our society. And the results of this, the results of individualism, the results of the death of community, in, in, by and large, in a not just in the church, but even societally, is the results are not good. They're not good at all. Um, In fact, here's a couple of just interesting things. Four years ago, the government in Great Britain um, appointed a loneliness minister based on a study that 10 million Brits or 10, or I mean, rather, 20% of the population of Great Britain identified themselves as chronically lonely. So they said, we need, the government needs to do something about this, so we're appointing a loneliness minister to solve this issue. I don't know what that person did, but I just think that's an interesting thing. Like, the government is now realizing this is having negative, pervasive impacts on our population. So we're going to appoint someone whose main job is to try to fix that. The bowling league was not reborn as a result. I don't know why. Uh, Theresa May, the former prime minister in the UK, in her statement to the press about this, said this, for far too many people, loneliness is the sad reality of modern life. It's pretty bleak. The US, the rates are higher. Uh, Rates of loneliness, so people identify themselves that way, uh, have doubled since the 1980s. 35% of Americans report that they are chronically lonely. According to Pew Research, Uh, Only 8% of people in the United States report having a meaningful conversation with a neighbor in the previous year. 8%. Now, statistics aren't like, it's not like ironclad, right? But this just, even if that's kind of true, it's like, whoa, that's alarming. 
1984, the average American had three confidants. In a recent report, uh, it says that 25% of all Americans have zero, had zero confidants. Someone they can confide in and bear their soul and walk through difficult things with and someone they can call. Our former Surgeon General, Dr. Murthy, former U.S. Surgeon General, wrote in an article for the Harvard Business Review. He said, during my years caring for patients, the most common pathology or disease I saw was not heart disease or diabetes. It was loneliness. The U.S. Surgeon General says that. He calls loneliness the great disease of our time. The great disease. The U.S. Surgeon General, former Surgeon General, the greatest pathology, the greatest disease you and I face today as modern Americans, he says, is loneliness. On a similar note, George Gallup said that Americans are among the loneliest in the world. And with this comes a wide range of health concerns. This one is staggering. Scientific study, Dr. Julian Holt Lundstad analyzed a... uh, a, a results of a survey taken by 300,000 people and concluded kind of the health impacts of loneliness. She concluded that chronic loneliness is equivalent to smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Whoa. Even if that were half true, that would be really bad news. Meaning the negative health impacts on a populace, on a people or a person that is chronically lonely are pervasive, and she concludes they may include heart disease, dementia, anxiety, and very much leads to severe depression. So why is this happening? Like, what's going on here? Extreme individualism, the selfie culture that we find ourselves in, right? The social media culture, the only online friends, leads to this thing called false community, I believe. And it's pervasive, and we buy into it. Real community is a, is a diversity of opinions coming together and coming to bear on one another. However, uh, Comer was, John Mark Comer was helpful in, in this. He says real community is just even secular community, bowling league community, is different people, different ideas coming together that can disagree on different nuances of different things but still remain friends and love one another, care for one another, and move about their day. Uh, that's kind of social constructs of community, right? Not, not necessarily in the church, although that needs to be there too. On the flip side, the counter, tribalism is the dark twin of community. I found this interesting. Community is based on mutual love. Tribalism is based on mutual hate. Community is based on uh, things that we're for, things that we're leaning into, things that we're pressing in to be for and stand up on. Tribalism centers around who and what we're against. So community is about honor and respect and celebrating the other. Tribalism, however, is a battle for scarce resources, and it's kill or be killed. So God, as he's built us, as he's wired us, is about building family and about building community, not tribalism. Diverse people. There's no 
There's no uh, rule that says you've got to be in this socioeconomic thing. You've, there's no rule that says you've got to be in this political affiliation. There's no rule that says you've got to be uh, whatever it is. It's, di- it's the global call that God calls people under his banner of love and grace and mercy to be for something. Sharing needs, sharing the love of Christ, standing up for justice, being made in the likeness of Christ, being formed into people that are less concerned with our individualistic needs and more concerned about loving and serving those around us whom God has placed us in a family of God together and calling people into this type of life. That's what the the community of Jesus, that's what Jesus begins to teach his disciples early on. That we'd be made into his likeness. So individualism kind of, I believe, fuels this loneliness and fuels these tribes or camps, right? If, if you don't believe me, just look at our current political structure right now, right? And just, it's just lobbing grenades at each other, so to speak, all day, every day. So why do we share all this? What, you're like, okay, glad I came to church. Welcome to church. I thought it was your birthday today. Man, is this what you like to think about on your birthday? Apparently so. Um, but why do I share all that? That's like, you know, statistics, it's bad news. You're like, what's going on here? Why did I show up here? Why say all this? Why look at all this? Is there an answer to any of this? Is there an answer to any of this ache that we feel in our digital social media world that we feel so connected yet at the same time disconnected? Is there an answer? Does Jesus and the kingdom of God and the church have an answer for any of these things that our society is very, in a real way, facing? And I believe yes. There is an answer. There is a practice in the Christian life that has a potential to set us up for a whole new way of living. And it's the antidote in many ways to these things that we're struggling with. Let's look at Matthew chapter 4, the verses will be on the screen, verses 18 through 20. This is as Jesus begins his ministry. This is Jesus calling his very first disciples. Listen to this. <laughs> Jesus, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said, Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Now, this isn't just kind of a cheesy Christian joke. It's not just like a cheesy, like one-liner that Jesus had. A fisher of men or a fisher of people would have been a first century idiom of a rabbi, that a rabbi would say that as he was calling people to follow them. In those days, in the first centuries, rabbis would call those that were going to follow them to follow in their footsteps, to follow in their way. And so Jesus does the same thing with these very first disciples. And what he means by that, this first century saying means, if you come follow me, I'm going to teach you how to capture the mind and imagination of the people. Make you a fisher of men, not just a fish. I'm going to teach you how to engage with those that are around you, capture their mind and heart so that they might know how to follow and honor God in this life. So follow me and I'll teach you how to do that. In other words, I'll teach you to be like me. I'll teach you to do the things that I'm doing. I'll make you into someone capable of capturing the heart of your generation. That's why these guys dropped their nets and followed them. They're like, okay. 
I, th- I thought I was doomed to like just being a fisherman my whole life. But now this rabbi sees something in me and says, I can be a part of changing the fabric of the world in which I live and helping influence the hearts and minds of my friends and my family with, with something that God wants them to know. These guys drop their nets and they follow Jesus. Now, I don't think they quite knew what they were getting into, but they followed him. Verse 20, immediately they left their nets and followed him. Next verse, verse 21. And going on from there, I mean, Jesus going on from there, it's like he's moving down the sea. He saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called to them. And immediately they left the boat and their father, and they followed him. Same thing happened again. They're mending their fishing nets with their dad and their dad's boats. These two brothers, Jesus calls out to them to a similar call. They, not only did they leave their boat and their nets, they left dad in the boat. They're like, I, I got to go. Like, I, I, I want to be a part of this. So very early on, just quick observation, in the life and in the ministry of Jesus, you get the sense that Jesus is calling people into community. Very early on, the very beginning. He's calling them into community. He typically, the life of Jesus, as you start reading the Gospels, he doesn't just call a disciple. That's that's not the normative way that Jesus calls people. He doesn't just say, you over there. He calls a people, and he calls them into what he's doing. And often they begin following him. But he he calls disciples, plural. And Jesus continues this call of these people into this community. But the thing thing about Jesus that's very fascinating, um, that's alarming for a lot of people, is there's a very, very high bar for entry. He doesn't allow any room for like non-committal, wishy-washy, I'll call you the day of if things work out, if nothing else comes up. Right? He, he has this very high bar, this very high commitment level. And we see that as you kind of go through Jesus' ministry. In fact, in Matthew chapter 8, the verses will be back here. This is the way Jesus approaches another group of people. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he's, he's continuing on in his ministry. More people are wanting to follow him. More people are wanting to know about this kingdom of God. And he said, and he gave orders And he gave orders to go to the other side, and a scribe, who was a very prominent profession at the time, he would have been well thought of, came up and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of God has nowhere to lay his head. He says this to this very prominent guy in the community. Jesus is not a good salesman. He didn't pitch him, uh, I mean, what's the the easy one? Sorry for taking this. Your best life now. He he doesn't say that. He's like, listen, if you want to follow me, there's a cost involved here. I don't don't have a home. Foxes have holes. Birds Birds of the air have nests. The son of man has nowhere to lay his head. He doesn't sell it too high here. He's basically looking at this guy and says, have you counted the cost that it's going to require of you to follow me? in the way that I'm calling you into? Have you realized the cost? And he goes on in verse 21, and another one of the disciples said to him, Lord, 
let me first go bury my father. Now, his father hadn't just died and he was waiting for a funeral. This would have been a first century thing that would have been said, meaning um, this disciple that wanted to follow Jesus was saying, hey, I'm living at home because families and generations stayed together. He said, I'll follow you when dad dies and gives me my inheritance. This could be years and years from now. So I can't just ask for my inheritance now to follow you because that would have been like the most disrespectful thing he could have done to his father and his household. So he said, Jesus, let let me bury my father first and then I'll come follow you. And Jesus looks at him and he says, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And this story is in here, and it's like, oh, that's just, that doesn't sound very nice. That doesn't sound very helpful. But what G- these two stories are right in here back to back with the one guy that was like, hey, the prominent guy says, I want to follow you. And the other guy says, maybe I'll follow you one day. These stories are left open-ended on purpose because what they're supposed to do is it's meant for the reader to start engaging with the text and say, where are we in the invitation to follow Jesus? Have we counted the cost Do we understand where he's calling us and to whom he's calling us? Do we understand that it's a call to follow him now and it's not just, well, once I get my life in order, once I do X, Y, and Z, then I'll really get serious about following the Lord. It's not like that. Jesus says, no, now in the mess of your life, in the mess of all the things going on, in the the crazy busy, he says, follow me now. He wants us to evaluate the call of Christ on our own lives. Some people we see will give up everything to follow after Jesus and be a part of this new community he's building. But for others, the, the, the barrier, the bar is just too high. So Jesus, in his ministry, calls people into community from the very beginning. Jesus was not just a guy that lived up on a mountain and had really good things to say and sent them down with like, carrier pigeons that we quote every now and again, Jesus immersed himself in the lives of people, right? He was not just a sage up on a mountain. He was with the people. So we are not called into the Christian life as just people who are alone. My college pastor used to say, there's no such thing as Lone Ranger Christianity. Right? We're, we're, we're bound up together in this. And there were a lot of people who turned down the call of Jesus' community throughout the Bible. Because the price was just too high. They, they counted the cost and they're like, oh, I don't think that sounds like it's for me. But to those that said yes and followed him, it was this mixed match of people from different socioeconomic places, from different cultural places, and this real diversity which probably meant there was some real conflict and misunderstanding. But that's where the beauty of community began to flesh itself out. The kingdom of God could be brought to bear even a little bit here on earth, that people from every tribe, tongue, and nation could come together under the banner of Christ, the love of Christ, the forgiveness of Christ, and find healing and hope amongst each other of people who are very different. It's not was not just a call for power and ease. It was a life together, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls it. And it's sometimes a lot different than what we think about when we think about community. 
Um, so what are some of the traps that we fall into as we wrap up here? I think one of the big traps is in our culture, and when we hear the call of Christ, when we hear what Jesus is calling us into, um, we, we mistake connectivity with community. I've, I've fallen to this all the time. Today's my birthday, so every 14 seconds, I'm looking to see who's wished me happy birthday, right? That's not real community, right? That's like someone I met 16 years ago that happened to be from a church nine years ago that just wrote, whatever, right? and you're like, oh, did they, that's not real community. We mistake connectivity with community, and so we often find ourselves just wanting to go over and get the quick fix to make us feel better about a like or about a post or about some, you know, something of that nature because it does feel really good at the moment. And then you realize, I haven't talked to that person in 16 years, like an actual face-to-face conversation. Now, I'm sure they're lovely people, but they're not really in our community. I don't rub shoulders with them. I don't really know what's going on in their lives. They're not really able to really hold me accountable to anything. They're not, I'm not able to really talk to them. We mistake connectivity with community. I think it's an oxymoron. It's like jumbo shrimp, right? It's like, it just doesn't really make sense. So we have all of these different kind of pathways into connectivity that we often mistake it with, with community. We have social media, and, you know, there's plenty of studies out there, I won't quote too many of them, that, that state the direct correlation with your engagement in social media with your levels of loneliness that you feel by and large. Um, And I think this is because a lot of us spend more time liking or looking at other people's lives and actually having a conversation with someone that we know. (laughs) So community in the Bible and in the life of Jesus is not just connecting. It's not just LinkedIn. It's not just to get something out of someone for a reference or whatever it is. Then what is it? The Bible calls it different things. It calls it fellowship. It calls it community. It calls it partnership. It calls it sharing. It says or to have things in common. And that requires relational equity. That means knowing where there are deficiencies, where there are needs, where there are hurts, where there are joys. And it is a group of people coming together under the banner of the good news of the gospel of Jesus that can put all different types of people in the same room together, much like this place here, and we can be for each other even in the midst of it. Community is right at the center of what Jesus is doing in this world. You could make the argument looking at the life of Jesus that his most practiced disciplines were solitude and community. When you look at his life, solitude and community. That these are the containers that hold all other things in his life and ministry. And I think that's true of even our lives. When you think about the, the, the times where you connect the most with the Lord, where you've heard from the Lord, where you've had breakthrough from sin, where you have breakthrough from whatever it may be that, that's plaguing you, that's bearing you down, I think the most, the most important work happens either in solitude or in community. When you get alone with God, you turn off the distractions, you hear from him, you begin praying, you actually get quiet for a beat, and you hear the still, small voice. God can speak to you in profound ways. Or it happens when a group of people that are for you, that love you under the banner of Jesus are able to speak into you. Profound things can happen in those two environments. Profound things. 
But my observation is that um, solitude is, is becoming a thing of the past because of our constant distractions in our connectivity in the connected world. And community, in fact, is eroding because of that same thing. The two things I think that we need that we see in the life of Jesus, we are forfeiting. And I think it's having pervasive effects. So to live in community is to come under the authority of Jesus, not simply just to be in a community that just meets all of your needs and individual desires, but to come under the authority of Jesus, under the collection of the people that God has brought even here at Providence North and lean in and be known, right? Lean into these different places that we have. None of them are perfect. I always like to say none of these ministries that we have are perfect uh, because there's people in them, right? Because I'm a part of them. So we have community groups. We have discipleship groups. We have women's connect nights. We have women's worship nights. We have men's connect nights. We have prayer services. We have all these things that are meant to be a conduit into into community with Jesus and each other. And what I want to challenge us as a church is that even when something better comes up, because it will, commit to these things because they're worth it. They're worth it. Jesus has called us to a high level of commitment, not only to himself, but to each other. We are more connected than we dare to imagine. And in a highly individualistic world that doesn't resonate with a lot of us, but the kingdom of God, we as a community and church are to be a little piece of that. We're to be like a little embassy of the kingdom of God and how we relate to one another, how we care for one another, how we sacrifice for one another, how we give to one another, how we share and love and challenge one another. So in a world... um, that hates commitment, myself included, I think the call of Christian biblical community says, lean into this because this is what's real and what matters. Invest deeply. The last thing I want to share with us is that I think the cure to this, this thing that plagues us a lot of times, this, this, this sense of loneliness, one is, yes, biblical community, but the thing that binds biblical community together is that Jesus himself is with you. Listen to this, John 14. This is my paraphrase of John 14. Jesus is looking at his disciples. Jesus is about to go away. The end of his ministry, he's about to ascend to go be with the Father. And he looks at his disciples. This is my paraphrase. I've gone over time, so I won't go into all of it. But he basically says, he says, church, he says, disciples, friends. He says, don't be troubled. I love that. He says, trust me. Because I myself will be your dwelling. And I will get you there. It's in this verse that talks about how Jesus is going to prepare a place for us. And a lot of us in our individualistic mindset, in our, in, in our minds we think Jesus is going to go build me a mansion in heaven. And I'll have all my nice things and I'll get to be there and live forever and happily ever after. And I'll have all my stuff. Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus says, heaven is not me building a mansion for you with all the things that you prefer in your life here on earth. 
Jesus is looking at us and he says, what I'm doing for you, the work I'm doing on the cross, the work I'm doing for you on Easter to raise, be raised again, to defeat death through the power of God. He says, I'm building a house for you and the house I'm building for you is myself. I'm gonna bring you to me because when you're with me, you have everything you need. It's not a house with all your favorite trinkets. Listen to this. He says, and I will go prepare a place for you. And I will come again and I will take you to myself. Take you to myself. Jesus says, heaven is with me. Heaven is community with me. What your heart is most longing for. So even our hope of heaven is community with Jesus. It's not our individual needs in a mansion that we get in the sky with all of our favorite things. It's Jesus himself because in the presence of Jesus, face to face with him, all other wants and desires evaporate and are obliterated because we need nothing else. He satisfies all of our needs forever. So he says, heaven is me. That's our hope of heaven. And when we live here, On earth together, Jesus calls us into community. And he says, it's not just your hope one day. He says, I'm also sending you a helper, the Holy Spirit. I'm with you forever and I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. And I'm with you always. And when that Holy Spirit is a part of you, leading you, guiding you, convicting you, and showing you the way of God, you get to do that collectively. And you get to be a little representative of heaven on earth amongst God's people in the church through community. Church is not a place, it's a people. So we get to be little embassies of community, of connectedness, no longer lonely. Death no longer is a fear of ours, connected beyond anything we can imagine. And that's a little shadow of what we get with Jesus one day in heaven. He says, I'm implanting in you the Holy Spirit to enable you and empower you to do that here on earth with very different people until I come back and get you until the, pl- the place is ready for you, and it's myself. And so this morning, what I want us to do as we conclude, as the band comes back up, is uh, I want us to end by taking the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper is a reminder for the church that God gives us in his word, one of the sacraments, that when we get to come, we realize that we are connected to Jesus in a profound way through his body and his blood, through his uh, body on the cross, nailed to the cross, his shed blood, the blood of the new covenant that now washes over us, purifies us, cleanses us of, of our sins, and calls us into a new life together as brothers and sisters in Christ under the banner of Jesus and his word and his way. And so we're gonna come and we're going to, I, I wanna even encourage you to maybe take a minute to pray and ask God for the courage to lean into community or life together or whatever it might be. Maybe take that next step of depth in a world that is often very shallow. I think what Christ is calling us to do here is that we would lean in and take that next step of depth with each other and with the Lord today. So I'm gonna pray and we say amen. Uh, Come take the Lord's Supper with us. Lord Jesus, (laughs) thank you that you have not left us alone. Thank you that we are, because of your shed blood, because of your body given for us, are now called sons and daughters. 
of God. And that thank you, Lord, because of that, we are also called brothers and sisters here amongst each other. And so, God, I just pray that um, you would do a work in our midst, in our hearts, and that you would help us understand how to lean into community, to fight against just listening to our individual wants, and that we would collectively, as a people, just be little embassies of what it looks like to, to be in heaven as God's people way that we love each other, serve one another, care for one another, call each other to holiness, pray for one another, provide for one another, because you've done it all for us in Jesus, and now we get to do it for one another. Help us in that. We need your help. In Jesus' name, amen. Come forward as you're ready.